Hey there, greetings everyone and welcome back to another episode of Plan B Success. We have Keeson Patel all the way from Chicago today. Keeson is the founder and CEO of M&A Science and Deal Room as well as the M&A Science Academy. So he's all about mergers and acquisitions and we'll find out what that is all about. So welcome Keeson. Hey, thanks for having me, Rajiv. All right, uh, so tell us a little bit about yourself. Sure. I'm CEO and founder of M&A Science. Come from a background where I did M&A advisory for about 10 years. Pretty typical founder story from the earth industry, some of the common challenges. And got uh, initial inspiration from the software industry, understanding and learning how software engineers utilized project management tools to develop software. And got the inspiration to start a product company to develop project management software for managing mergers and acquisition, which was Deal Room in 2012. And that business evolved into a full lifecycle management solution for mergers and acquisitions, where today we focus on serving larger corporations that are either frequent or serial acquires. They would use our software product to manage the whole lifecycle from sourcing opportunities to managing the diligence and planning integration and managing the execution of integration. Awesome. So why do you call M&A a science? I, you know, when it, what happened was during the early years, I was working with initially investment banks and they weren't the early adopters. So we found that corporates were actually the better use case in earlier adopters of our solution. And in working with corporates, I quickly realized they were very unique and they had different approaches to M&A, different thinkings around M&A, uh, which caused me to realize there was a bigger underpinning problem in the industry, which is that the industry itself was very siloed and disconnected from their peers, which created this lack of standardization and best practices, essentially the science. You know, we didn't have real evidence on the techniques that were being applied in the industry. And at the time, a buddy of mine in marketing was like, hey, man, you should do a podcast. And I was like, what the hell is a podcast? And he's like, don't worry about it. Just you should do a do one. And then I ended up marrying the idea together of utilizing a podcast as a platform to enable practitioners to share lessons learned so that we can then in turn identify the proven techniques in the industry. Uh, hence, the science theme was really around being able to validate and, and find proven repeatable processes. You know, I've got a curious question, and uh, that is, traditionally, business growth has been organic. You know, that, that was what was preached in schools, and that was what was followed. And then the inorganic growth aspect of it came into being, and that's where I think m and plays a big role. And in, in terms of speed, in terms of making sure that you grow your business as quickly as you can, and then the the skyrocketing valuations that we see today. What's what's been your experience, you know, having been in that career for such a long time in terms of how do you see it has evolved and the evolution that you have seen? Are there good and bad sides to it? Yeah, yeah. So the, I mean, there's some fundamental economics in play when you have a larger entity. They tend to trade at a higher multiple. So we see a lot of industry consolidation plays that happen tend to be private equity backed. Uh, so if you see a lot of these chains emerging through a series of, of acquisitions, that that's one component. When we look at the public markets, 
the publics tend to favor these acquisitions. You do a lot of deals, you pay high prices, but as long as your market cap's growing, it's a net positive thing. Uh, I'd say the one big change is the rationale for doing deals is shifting from some of the traditional means of growing market share for scale to doing acquisitions for capabilities. Um, and, and I think that's the the big change is the atmosphere is more and more competitive, um, which means organizations need to be looking at ways to disrupt their own company. And they're looking at acquisitions as a means to be able to do that and be able to keep with times and make sure that their business stays relevant. Um, and I mean, we're talking about very large traditional print businesses that are completely evolving to full digital business through the means of acquisitions. Well, that's, that's the big change that's happening in the industry. You know, the, the, there was a time when management basically taught around uh, about core competencies, right? That you got to focus on what your core competency is and then go and chase after it and build whatever you build around that core competency. That's changing, right? Now you have uh, organizations going after multiple verticals, probably under the same umbrella or sometimes even divesting from, from that umbrella. And that's what's given to the the large organizations that we're talking about. With that change, do you see anything in terms of, uh, you know, companies doing due diligence when it comes to M and A, um, and how much does core competencies uh, still rule the roost as a viable aspect of this? Yeah, I, I think the diligence approach is shifting to accommodate for compressed timelines because of how competitive the market is today. That there's a lot of capital out there and need needs to be put to work. So you're seeing processes, auction processes that are highly competitive and in turn lend to a really reduced timeline for doing diligence, which makes it really, really tough. Uh, so that, that part's there, the activity's still there. I think when it comes to the diversified strategy, it depends on the organization. There usually is something thought out. You, you know, we don't see organizations just going out to buy. If they are, it should be mapped to a specific strategy that gives a sense of a rationale for why they're going in that direction. And it could be um, to essentially build a business line. And we've seen organizations do that where they've assembled an entire business line through a series of acquisitions. Um, we're, we're seeing the stuff where even the traditional car manufacturer like Toyota is now building a whole business unit around AI and looking to transition their organization from a traditional car manufacturer into a AI software company. Diversification is tied to a long-term strategy for that company. So hopefully the companies out there, you know, it's it's tied to some uh, strategic rationale, and it's um, you know, there, there's a reason they're doing it. It's not we're not in the climate that you're doing acquisitions for the sake of acquisitions. I don't think anybody can afford to do that. We are beyond the times of financial acquisitions where you're buying a company on a sound EBITDA multiplier. 
you're buying companies because there's um, a lot of synergy assumptions behind it and how you're going to create value once you've acquired that company. And your success is dependent on how well you can execute on those value drivers. You know, is it fair to say that uh, this whole uh, aspect of buying and selling businesses has moved on from just objective means to a more of a subjective criteria as well? In a sense, because you, you can't buy low, sell high. You need to do something. You need to buy a business and have a way of generating value from it. There's got to be a unique position to it. And if it, if it is one of those plays where you're doing a series of acquisition, you better believe you're going to have a, a cost of that learning curve initially that you need to compensate for. What are some of the best practices that you would recommend when it comes to M&A? Sure. I, I think buy side, starting with the end in mind, you know, to, to, I think buying a company, there are these strategic reasons why you purchase it. You're buying it for the customers. You're buying it for the people. You're buying it for the technology, having clear articulation on why you're doing the deal, why you're making this acquisition. And then to take that and think, crystallize this end state on what you're trying to achieve and bring it to the front end of the process where you can essentially get aligned with the CEO of that company that you're looking to acquire and even start thinking or outlining what a go-to-market is going to look like together. Um, I, I think that's what often gets lost is one of the biggest mistakes is there's not clarity or th thinking into not so much the details, but alignment on how we're going to achieve these results. You know, we're going to build this valuation model that has a lot of assumptions around how we're going to drive synergy out of the deal, but we need to get aligned on what it's going to actually take to make that happen and how this organization we're acquiring needs to be involved to, to make those milestones and goals happen. And then from that early beginning, bringing the end state to the front, uh, start developing your integration plan as soon as you start your diligence process so that as you gather information about the organization, you continually iteratively update your integration plan so that when you do close in this transaction, you're ready to hit the ground running. Uh, you've spent time with the other organization and they have a sense of your company and where their organization is going to fit into that picture. And there, there's that communication, transparency, and alignments there so that both organizations can work together to achieve those goals. You know, when it comes to some of these deals and the investment dollars coming in, you know, what kind of importance or what kind of uh, a precedent uh, is given to the, the team that's managing this, the, 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 let's say it's a company that's acquiring another company and uh, there's an investment arm coming in and putting in the dollars. What are they banking on? Is it purely capabilities? Is it purely uh, the futuristic view of uh, how this is going to enhance the existing organization and how important is the team that's at the helm in, yeah, so in, in all of this? A lot of, there's a lot of factors that go in that tend to be unique situation to situation but you want to build a business case on doing the deal because it's typically not, Hey, the CEO got full control and they can sign off on this stuff. Mm -hmm. A lot of times there's a board that needs to approve 
these large investments. Acquisitions tend to be uh, the largest expenditure for any organization. Uh, so having this clear business case on why this deal is important for the organization and the value they're going to drive from it. And that's where it aligns with the strategy. If it's purely for scale, getting into new geographies, uh, expanding on current geographies, m- maybe uh, bridging roadmap gaps that, hey, we're, we're looking to build this capability and this will help us get there faster. Uh, if it's purely for the people, we've seen a lot more plays of especially dealing with the global shortage of engineers, uh, a, lot, a lot of these um, aqua hire type of acquisitions to, to bring in additional talent faster. Um, I, I think that clarification of the business case on uh, how it's, it's aligned to a broader initiative of the organization is, is what's key. Um, but it, it is definitely a unique company to company. You know, how, how do you think uh, the, the investment side of it is changing between private equity, VCs, angel investors, now crowdsourcing for that matter, uh, you know, with the evolution of uh, um, where the capital is coming from, how has that impacted uh, how private equity and venture capital is looking at the industry? Well, industry uh, valuations are stupid high right now. So they've both got some challenges when it comes to deploying capital. Um, you, need, you need to deploy capital, but you need to create value when doing that. So I, it is a tough market. It's highly competitive. Um, I, I think the other thing is is that I mentioned earlier, like gone are the days of buying something with the, you know, like a, a financial rationale that, hey, we can buy this business and the current performance is going to allow us to operate in as is state. Now with the things the way they are, you're going to be paying a premium and you need to have a plan on how you're going to create additional value through means of cost or revenue synergies. You know, when it comes to the sell side, let's say you're a seller looking out for someone to buy your business, what can you do in order to maximize the value you can gain? Lots of lipstick, lots of lipstick on the pig. Um, (laughs) Preparation. Uh, Rajiv, I think preparation is the key thing. That's the the lifting to do up front, keeping the house clean, organized books, getting a sense of when you present your business to prospective buyers, what their diligence process is going to be like. How, how are they going to be doing their assessment to validate the value they're going to propose to purchase the business for? And if you can do more of that up front, the better positioned you're going to be. Um, I, I think there's things to warm up uh, with uh, prospective buyers ahead of time so that you get a sense of who those prospective buyers are be or what direction you want to go because you can sell to a PE firm. It could be a platform play for them or an add on, or, or you could find a, a strategic buyer at a large corporation. And getting a sense of what that ecosystem of buyers is like early, I, I, I think is good because you can start nurturing some of those relationships. Uh, corp dev folks, they that's their job is to keep an eye on the market and identify those opportunities for potential acquisitions. So they should be favorable to entertaining some of those intro conversations. Uh, I, I think doing that early 
helps with the process. And then I, I think when you get to that point where you're considering engaging a banker is probably by then having a sense of the direction that you want to go. Do you want to run a competitive process to objectively get the highest price? Or do you want to play it out for that long run and look prioritize like the best home for your, your company for the future of it and the future of the employees that work there? Um, I, I, I think they're, they're different types of sale processes. When you do an auction process, we talked about that fast diligence that you go through uh, and it's, it get things, things get done fast, but you don't have as much consideration for the long view when you do run a fast moving process. So when you have, um, the time on your side and you're developing relationships with these prospective buyers over a period of time without this time urgency, you be, tend to become more considerate about these factors that make us impact on the, the deal. And you'd have more time to learn about what the strategies for the company and what, what's that post close uh, state going to look like after the company's acquired. You know, not every deal goes right. Right. So what would what you see as some of the common mistakes made during the M and a process? Common mistakes made during the M and a process. There's a lot. There's a lot of different types of mistakes. Oh, I think, you know, going back to the buy or, or sell side, you know, on the sell side, if you don't have the preparation to go through a sales process, because oftentimes it's underestimated how intense and taxing that process is. And especially if you're working with a large company on the other side, they may have the capacity to put a lot of resources to it. And you're going to be spending a lot of time answering requests for documentation and answering clarification questions. And that's going to bog you down to the point that you will be distracted from the key goals that you're currently working on. Uh, and you want to minimize it to the point where it doesn't affect the business performance. So I, I think on the sell side is being mindful of the resources that are needed. Uh, and there's always a lot of factors that could come up and, and create some issues with the deal, uh, you know, based on those findings that come about in diligence. I, I think being mindful that you should have a approach to be proactive and responsive on these things that, that process itself so that as issues and things of that sort come up, that communication can flow uh, quickly to get those responses back and, and resolve some of those things that pop up. Um, I think that that's, that's goes to the whole information management component, making sure you got a well-architected flow for that. Mm -hmm. um, you know, the sell side, I, I think the clarification, you know, just getting clarification on as much of the details as you can. I, I think very much doing an M&A is such a two-way process, just like interviewing for a job. Like you got to ask questions on both sides. You can't be selling your business, but not wanting to understand what the buyer is trying to do to be able to help make that transition as smooth as possible. And I think that's where a lot of times where the clarity isn't there. Then once the deal closes, it tends to be the, the challenging part. And we, we close the deal. We essentially got a promissory check of the value for that organization and going through these post close activities, integration activities is when we actually 
cash in that check and, and turn it into some real value. And that's the most difficult part of M&A to be able to, to capture the value that was intended from the created investment thesis. Awesome. So, you know, the companies that you have, Deal Room versus M&A Science and the Academy, can you tell us the difference between these? Sure. So Deal Room is a lifecycle management platform, really manage the M&A process, end-to-end sourcing, diligence, integration. It's geared towards larger corporations, PE-backed roll-ups. We have another digital product called Firm Room, which in the industry, they commonly use virtual data rooms. We had the technology built into Deal Room. But notice a lot of firms were specifically looking for that technology because maybe they're doing small deals. They can manage the workflow in Excel, not a big deal. Then we actually have a self-service product for that as a data security solution. And then we own and operate an online school called m Science Academy. This is a, a product from podcasting. We started creating a lot of blogs and eBooks. We ended up publishing two books, the first of which was called Agile M&A, which is a framework on applying agile practices to M&A, we developed with case studies based on Google and Alassian's M&A approach and how they utilize agile techniques stemming from their engineering culture. Uh, so really great one. It's something that we predicted as a trend in our industry and has definitely been catching on. Uh, so it's, it's been nice to get it on that early. Um, and th- those are probably the, the main business lines, having a framework, doing a lot of digital media across various formats, hosting these summits about once a quarter, and then having this academy to take content in a structured format so it can be uh, taught as practical how-tos, the various areas of M&A. You know, I, I think at the end of the day, we look at our business today as building capabilities to solve problems in M&A. Awesome. And where can people find these books? Amazon, we have Agile M&A and M&A Tactics Handbook, both on Amazon. And we also have a store on our website with a bunch of other free content. It's mascience.com. And uh, in terms of people trying to reach you, what's the best way to connect with you? I'm always on LinkedIn. LinkedIn, just Kisan, K-I-S-O-N, Patel. And uh, I'm, I'm usually there. Happy to have conversations about M&A. Awesome. Kisan, thank you so much for joining us today and sharing your experience and expertise with the viewers. Before I let you go, one takeaway for the listeners, anything that you'd like to share? Um, Boy, anything I'd like to share. Let's say, um, you you know, I I think when we think about all of this and problem solving is sort of the big skill, I think empathy is the biggest driver that often gets forgotten when it comes to problem solving. You know, we tend to really try to get the quickest path to find the root cause. But if you can take the time to understand the story of the person, really connect with them, under, get more of a sense of how they feel and why they feel that way. I, I think that's just one of the most powerful things that you can do for any of your professional and personal relationships. And I, I just highly recommend being mindful of it, encouraging yourself to really Put away your own agendas and focus on the person, listen, uh, and get a sense of how they feel, why they feel that way, and connect with them to see things through their eyes. It'll, it'll help you when you can learn and understand what they're trying to achieve, their goals, uh, how they see it, and be able to help them achieve their goals. It'll take you a lot further. 
Awesome. Well, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you so much for sharing your story as well as your expertise. Thank you. My pleasure.